I recently heard Jess Helvick speak to a group of employee owners in Missouri, and that means the underlying company is owned by an ESOP, an employee benefits plan. And when I heard Jess speak, I was immediately taking notes. Now, I do have a better than average understanding of ESOPs, but I'm still learning about these plans, and I want to keep bettering my understanding of ESOPs. Jess is clear. He speaks simply, and his message is impactful. And accordingly, I asked Jess Helvick of First International Bank and Trust to talk about ESOPs. And the first third of our conversation is about the what, why, and who of ESOPs. We also talk about the three myths, or I should say three myths surrounding ESOPs. And finally, we talk about some of the nuts and bolts of these plans, the before during and after implementation. This conversation is fluid. It's going to go fast, and I promise you'll learn something new. I'm Mark Gandy. This is Silva Bookshelf. My conversation with Jess Helvick, an ESOP expert with First International Bank and Trust, is coming up next. One of my favorite books in investing, Jess, and we've had him on. His name is Guy Spear, and he wrote the book, The Education of a Value Investor. In fact, I, I've read it a couple of times. I've listened to it a couple of times, and Guy's a great guy. So I love the title, The Education of a Value Investor. Well, let's flip this around, The Education of an ESOP Expert. I know you haven't written a book on this. Maybe I should say yet, but what has been your education of an ESOP expert? You know, it, it's interesting. I have yet to meet someone in this industry who more or less was intentional about getting here. For a lot of experts, for a lot of professionals, they almost, they fall into it. And 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 I think my story is similar. I was very fortunate. I, I, I joined an organization that was working with ESOPs and, and happened to have an industry expert who'd been in the business for uh, 30 years at the time. And, and, and he was very generous with his time and with his knowledge to, to really anyone that wanted to listen about ESOPs because he was very passionate about them. He had seen them work. He, he, he really, uh, like I said, had a passion for them. And so it was hard for me to not share that passion, just hearing about the success, the successful ESOP companies that he's seen. And obviously that success at the greater scale was, was, was also experienced at the participant level as they retired, as they moved on into the next chapter of their lives. And so that, that really was, was the, a benefit that I, more or less walked into and, and really looking back on it, um, probably one of the pivotal moments of, of my professional career, just just really having the opportunity to learn under someone like that. As you were learning ESOPs, what endeared you the most about uh, about the ESOP in general? Yeah, yeah, no, just the, the general concept of you know, you're the the the, the sharing. I, I I don't always like to use that word, but the sharing of wealth amongst the greater good. I mean, I you know, growing up, uh, I, I I played sports in, in various roles, and and always team sports. There was something about that concept of the team sport that I really could could understand and get behind. And so you know, when you when you 
transition to your professional life, there's a, there's a transition period, right? You just, you're not, maybe not always on a team sport or it doesn't always feel like it, but, you know, seeing successful ESOP companies uh, work and, and, and really band together uh, had that same feel as, as a team sport did back, back in the earlier years. And so that was really what drew me. What what is your current role in work before we get into talking about ESOPs? I want to just hear a little bit more about what you do. I first heard you speak a few weeks ago and I thought, oh my gosh, this guy knows his stuff. Uh, I mean, I know you work uh, at a bank uh, in yep. the greater Northwest, but, but just explain your current role and, and what you do. Yeah, my, my current role, we, uh, my, my title is, is director of enterprise retirement solutions, which I'm never, not a big title person. My, my role, my day-to-day role is really to, to try and be a consultant to, to our plan sponsors and really to our participants in terms of, you know, some of the intricacies that come with having a qualified retirement plan own some of, or in a lot of cases, all of the shares of the company. And so with that, arrangement there there is really uh, some unique uh points that that i think if if played out well can really be successful however there are they can also be tripping points and so i i really view my role you know serving as trustee of of esops in that consultative role again both to the plan sponsor to the board and then to the ultimately to the participants or the employee owners i want to talk now about ESOPs in general, and I'm thinking, how do I break this up? So we've got three different buckets. We're going to talk about the three W's of ESOPs. We're then going to jump into myths, commonly held myths about ESOPs. And then I want to talk about the nuts and bolts about actually doing it. So let me just start with the three fundamental questions. And I know personally I have to deal with the, the curse of knowledge. Well, they already know that. They, they already understand that. But uh, let's just, the most fundamental question, what is an ESOP? You know, I think if, if you're looking for an elevator pitch or, you know, at, at boiled down to its simplest form, I, I, would, I would tell you that an ESOP is a retirement plan that allows participants or allows employees to participate in the success of the company. Do you, obviously this will be an opinion, but do you still find that there's still a limited awareness in the business community at large of what ESOPs are? Do do you still find that people, well, I didn't know about those. I didn't know about that. I didn't know that was an option if I want to exit my company. Do you still find that? As All a the time. All the time. I, I, I don't I don't even think it's an opinion. I think I, I, I think I feel pretty confident in saying it's a fact. It, it is just not as common yet as as you would think. And I, I ran into this yesterday. We we are talking with a company that is has made the decision to go ESOP. And so we're helping them through that process kind of towards the year end point here. But the only reason the the, the concept of ESOP came up is because of the fact that this company works with a CPA that knows what an ESOP is. And, and maybe maybe doesn't have all of the, the, the finer points of, of what the ESOP can do and how it's structured, but knows where to, where to find the resource 
when he runs in the situations that feel like they might be a fit. And so I think for a lot of business owners, those close professionals, whether it's a CPA, whether it's a, an attorney, a law firm, if, if one of those professionals isn't educated on ESOPs or doesn't at least feel confident enough to, to suggest it, it doesn't it doesn't come up. What would you say is the difference between an ESOP and a company going public where many of the employees have an ownership share? Do you get that question very often, Jess? You know, we, we don't a lot. Uh, we, we don't see a ton of companies going public uh, in our space. I would say, you know, when I look at it at a high level from a difference, you know, th- there there is just... Uh, no matter how it happens, there is uh, there is always this. I don't want to say stigma, but but certainly there's there's a there's a different connotation when the company goes public. Yes, the employees are sharing in that in that uh, success of the company, but their their ability to help drive share price is somewhat limited because, as we know, uh, publicly traded markets sometimes react on strange things. And, and don't always react strictly on the, the financial uh, uh, ability of the company. And so one thing to me that is really unique within the ESOP space is, you know, while we're going to get a stock uh, update every year, that stock update is strictly driven off of financials. It's not driven off of, um, you know, emotions. It's not driven off of what's happening in the, you know, in the greater uh, world necessarily. It is more focused on, what is happening to that company specifically? And so I think from that standpoint, that that really sets out, uh, sets apart ESOPs from publicly traded companies. Great point. Question number two, and this is going to apply probably more towards CEOs who may be thinking about an exit. Why would any owner go down this particular path? What, what's the why for yeah. an ESOP? Yeah. You know, I think it can it can vary, obviously, depending on different circumstances and, and people's situations. Uh, a couple of common themes that I see. Uh, obviously, there's some tax benefit and, and that tax benefit not only can help the selling shareholders, but but it's a pretty tax efficient way to transition a business. Uh, that same company that I mentioned before that we're working on taking through a transaction Previously, with another business, they had actually made an acquisition uh, of a company uh, themselves, and and I heard three or four times from that uh, that that gentleman I was talking to that it was just not a real tax efficient way to do it because you're using after tax dollars to pay off that debt, and so the ability and the way the tax structure is with ESOPs, it just becomes a, a really a clean. Uh, opportunity to transition a business. So I think that certainly has some play. I think, you know, the, the greater uh, reason we hear for people that, that go ESOP is in a lot of cases, and especially where I, where I find myself traveling a lot, a lot of these companies are in small to mid-sized towns. They're not in a, in a, in a real large metro area. And I think one of the things that the, selling shareholder uh, enjoys about the concept of the ESOP is that I'm not selling to my competition. I'm not selling to a third party or to a private equity group. 
And, 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 and because of that, I have a lot more confidence that this company, this baby, in some cases that I've spent my life nurturing and growing is going to remain intact. And not only is it going to remain, remain intact, it's going to remain in the town that has been so vital to this company and that this company has been so vital to this town. And so there, there's a great comfort with the fact that in some of these towns, this, this company might be the top two or top three employer. And so the, the ability to keep that company in that town and really remain uh, retain that legacy is, is really a, a key selling point. And then finally, obviously, uh, having the opportunity to, to pass the company to the people that, that made it work um, and, and just really see them benefit from, from that ESOP is, is probably the top three reasons we hear. We had Greg Graves on the show a few months ago. And the reason I'm, I'm kind of talking slow, I'm trying to remember, is about three or four months ago, back in May 2021 this year, uh, Greg is the former CEO of one of the largest engineering firms in the United States. And what I did in, in that interview is I found someone that he actually started work with the same year. I think she... She, I don't know. If she, I think she worked in administration. So I found her, and and was able to ask her a couple of questions. Greg did not know about this, but as I was talking to her, and she retired the same year as Greg did, and she was in tears. And she's a multi-millionaire. She retired. She didn't even hit sixty yet, and she retired. I'm curious. I know you don't know the answer to this, but I'm curious of how many millionaires have been created because of ESOP plans. And it gets back to that why. <laughs> the number is growing by the day. I can tell you that. I, I'm, I have no idea how to gauge how many, but I can tell you the number is growing by the day. And I think, you know, that, that what we see just in our book of business that we work with on a, on a, on a yearly basis for those mature 100% ESOPs, it is a pretty consistent theme to see participants when they retire uh, in a lot of cases, having two times, three times, in some cases, four times more money in their ESOP than in their 401k. That's amazing. That, and and it's, it's huge. And, and to me, retirement wouldn't be an option for those participants if they were strictly relying on that 401k plan. But because of that ESOP, adding that, that extra benefit plan, it, 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 it's all the difference. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. Here is a question that I do ask a lot to other ESOP uh, experts, and I'm still searching for that perfect answer 
Uh, who are ESOPs for? And I guarantee you, Jess, I'm going to have a follow-up question. But but who are who are ESOPs for? I think I think that answer is is pretty broad. Uh, you know, if if you if you want to break it down by industry, we, we see it across a, a, a number of different industry types. Um, I, I think the only thing that might limit companies from looking at ESOPs is is one if if employee count is 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 real small. So, you know, maybe under 20 or 25, that, that might be a, a prohibitive uh, a metric. And then I, I think the other thing that ESOPs do need are some consistency in terms of revenue stream. You know, you, it's, it's hard to have an ESOP that, that might have a history of, of going two or three years, you know, in a row with, with negative earnings. You know, that, that's tough to, to have an ESOP uh, be in that type of environment. But I think outside of those two, uh, fairly straightforward um, demographics. I think I think ESOPs fit a lot of cases. You you unwittingly hit one of my big questions. It's it's about the size of business and and by the way, you make a great point on that unpredictable revenue. But let, let's assume for a minute we're in a small town. Uh, Marbley, Missouri, is north of where I live, of about forty five miles. Small town, thirteen thousand. So like a lot of small towns like that, you have a lot of small, what I'm going to call them Warren Buffett-like businesses. They're just, they're businesses that will never go away. You got the small HVAC installer and maintainer, uh, plumbers, uh, you got roofing contractors, uh, you've got gutter installers. So those are basic businesses that they actually drive some very nice cash flow and predictable, but it's just a one-shop owner. They're right. never going to have 10, 12, 30 different locations. It's just one. So let's take that small HVAC business that does maybe $3 million a year with maybe 11, 10 employees. Still good cash flow. There's a part of me that wishes there was a small business ESOP-friendly method to help <laughs> them too. Am I, am I asking a dumb question? I, I wish smaller businesses that had still solid cash flow that there's a way that ESOPs could work for these smaller enterprises. Agree. Totally agree, Mark. And I think, I think really the, 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 the limitation on on companies like that are, are the rules that the IRS set out in terms of uh, making sure that plans don't discriminate, but, but unfortunately that some of those discrimination tests hurt plans with small employee numbers. And so, you know, while, while the, while the intent was good uh, in terms of the IRS regs and, and some of the tests that they require, it does hurt the opportunity for some of those small businesses to, to be able to take advantage of that. And so yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I have another bucket of questions. And I want to give you a credit because you mentioned one of the myths of ESOPs. I thought, wait a minute, let me, let me find a couple other uh, potential possible myths about ESOPs. So I've got three. I thought we'd just roll through these. Uh, let's talk a little bit about value. So let's say you've got Sarah, you've got Tom who own, whether it's a small manufacturing uh, business or e-commerce, maybe they feel like they won't realize the full value of their business if they sell it to uh, an ESOP as opposed to a third party. Is that a myth? Or is it reality? I, I think it's probably somewhere in between. I, I, I certainly think, you know, if, if you were to, to compare ESOP transactions versus 
maybe a a a a, a friendly or not a friendly, but a a negotiated sale from a from a competitor. You know, there there might be some some um, level of efficiency that that competition could come in in terms of taking out uh, certain administrative functions and things of that sort to maybe realize a little bit more return and therefore pay a little bit more for the company. I think you know, really, you know, as we talked about earlier, it's really a matter of what is that owner trying to accomplish? If it's if it's to sell at the top dollar and, and really not care what that company looks like in five years, that, then maybe an ESOP isn't the right fit. And that's okay. That's that's certainly their, their objective. I think for a lot of owners that we've talked to after going through the process, you know, when, when they when they had an idea of what was available to them out in the marketplace, however, offsetting some of the downside or some of the negatives of selling outright, I think most of our owners would agree that more than a fair market value has been paid because of just some of the flexibility uh, that, that the ESOP structure allows in terms of going forward. Potential myth number two, and again, this doesn't have to be a myth, it may be or it may not be benefit plan. An ESOP is a benefit plan. Myth or it's true? I, I think wholeheartedly true. Um, obviously, it's a benefit plan because it has to follow uh, uh, pretty much all of the same rules as other benefit plans. I, I think where where there may be some myth around this that that we as, as a professional community need to be better at is, is helping employee owners at these various employee-owned companies better understand why it's a benefit plan. Because uh, I'll be honest, you know, in, in, our, in our annual education meetings that we do with our clients and, and with the employee owners, you know, especially for some of those newer employee owners just coming on, you know, maybe worked in, the, in, the, in other companies that didn't offer ESOPs in the past, the concept of an ESOP is a bit unique. And, and for a couple of reasons, right? Things in the ESOP usually only happen once a year. So for nine to 11 months of the year, the ESOP is pretty quiet and it's easy as a participant to forget about it. And unlike your 401k and maybe some other plans that are, you know, you've got money going in every paycheck, you get quarterly statements, there's a lot more activity, therefore it's on your mind more. I think with ESOP, sometimes participants tend to forget about it. However, I do think the industry as a whole in structuring transactions um, tends to ask better questions early on around what are we intending in terms of having this ESOP provide a benefit level? Is it 5% of compensation? Is it 10? I would tell you, Mark, that our book of business that we work with, the average contribution rate on an annual basis to participants is roughly around 10 to 12% of compensation. Well, when you compare that to the industry average, uh, not including ESOPs at about three, uh, hard to argue it's not a benefit plan. Absolutely. And by the way, I heard you give this explanation a few weeks ago, and I thought, I've never heard someone explain that that clearly. And I thought every Every person who is an employee owner needs to hear what you just said. Uh, again, th- that is, I, I don't think you can get any clear uh, with that comment about it being a, a benefit plan. Uh, la- last myth, 
And this is, I'm, I'm cheating. It, it's, it's actually two, but we're going to call it one. I have to sell, I being the business owner, I have to sell 100% of my business and I'm going to lose complete control of it. Is that a myth? Absolutely. It's a myth. Um, we see a number of ESOPs that, that sell less than 100%. In fact, in a lot of cases, if they're selling less than 100%, and, and in most cases, they're selling less than a majority of the company. And so, you know, call it 48%, 30%, somewhere in that range. We do see those transactions now. They don't happen as much as they used to, um, but we still do see those. And so that is certainly an option. Uh, if, if an owner is not fully ready to transition out or if they're not fully ready to, to give control up, uh, quote unquote, then then certainly a, a, a minority ESOP is an option. I want to talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of an ESOP. And I thought the best way to do that is to look at what happens before the ESOP. Then let's look, look at day one and then let's look, let's look at beyond uh, day one. And I want to just look at the, some of the key activities. So before the ESOP, let's just say the decision has already been made to push play. We're going to do this. What are some of the key activities that have to be nailed down that have to be completed before that ESOP becomes reality? Yeah, I think, I think, you know, once, once the decision is either made or it's certainly trending that way, that ESOP looks like a viable uh, option and accomplishes, you know, the goals that are set out. I, I think the seller certainly does wants to do themselves justice or sellers in some cases and, and, and partner with a good uh, consulting firm to really model out what, what the transaction might look like. And that, that consulting firm would, would ultimately, you know, provide the sellers or seller uh, uh, consultation throughout the process. But I think it, uh, uh, some of the better run transactions that we see have had quite a bit of thought put into them early in terms of the structure, in terms of some of the non-negotiables, I might say, in, in terms of what the owner is looking for and maybe what some of the, the give and takes that they're maybe willing to, to offer up to make it a successful transaction. So I think that's crucial is, is really, you know, uh, plan it out, uh, make sure that you're comfortable with what the proposed structure might look like. Two, two quick follow-up questions, if I may, Jess, is, is the owner going to be tied up a lot because there's still the day-to-day business to run. There's still fires right. to fight. There that's right. still people to, to coach, mentor, develop, is this going to take up a lot of his or her time going through this process? It's certainly, uh, I, I'll be honest, it, it certainly is going to include some some additional time. There's, there's no doubt about it. But I think, you know, uh, you, you spend 30 plus years in a lot of these cases growing this business. You, you don't want to skimp on the time that it takes to, to plan an appropriate exit because you, you, for a lot of people, it's a one-time opportunity. Not many people get more than one chance to sell a business. And so, especially one they've spent their lives uh, cultivating. And so I think, I think you want to do it justice. And I, I, I totally agree that uh, these CEOs are, are stretched pretty thin, but this is one. And, and we do see a lot of sellers that will involve a key person. Maybe it's a CFO, maybe it's an operations person, someone else that can help off that offload some of that 
data requests and some of that information requests that comes across uh, to versus having all fall on their own shoulders. When we wrap up, I'm going to have one more question about finding that consultant. I'm, I'm going to ask you where, but I want to hold off on that if that's okay. Yeah. So, so we, we've mapped out the activities that consultants going to help with the roadmap. And then you're hopefully you're going to have that one person internally that can really be that project manager, project planner, keeping everyone on task. It's day one. What does day one look like of an ESOP? Honestly, it, it, it really is very unique to the company and to the employees. Uh, there, there, there are some companies that are a little more uh, uh, muted about it and, and are, share kind of what went on, but, but maybe uh, leave it at that. There are other companies that, that have big celebrations. Uh, we've seen a number of companies that you know, will bring everyone together, all the employees, uh, kind of keep it under the cover of darkness in terms of what the intent of the meeting is, and then announce kind of out of the blue that we're selling the company and we want you to meet the new owners, and then leave it there for 10 seconds, 20 seconds, while the, while the, while the anticipation mounts, and then announce that the owners are sitting to your right and sitting to your left. So it, it really is unique to the company and to the employee base and to the geography and all of that. But I, I do think your your team, both your consulting team and, and then maybe a step that we didn't talk about in that leading up to the ESOP, the, the, the trustee team, as you go out and interview them and find a good fit, all of those professionals will have a lot of ideas around what we've seen from other companies, what works and what, what's been successful. I want to be careful about asking a, a leading question, but as we talk about day zero or day one, ha- have you found just that employees are much more well-versed in business knowledge and financial knowledge of those inside an ESOP as opposed to non-ESOP organizations? I think generally the answer is yes. Now, again, every every company is a bit unique in terms of how much information is shared. But I, I would tell you that I, I do see some correlation with the fact that, you know, the employees, regardless of industry, some, some people make the mistake of thinking, well, you know, th- that's a professional organization. They're a, a, a service company or they're an architect engineer firm. Those employees know more than a than our HVAC company employees. Generally, maybe you could make some, you know, specific to financials. Generally, you might want to, you could make some of those uh, assumptions, but I'll tell you, we've seen in, in, in the right spots, uh, if the company has been diligent in, 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 in sharing what drives value, because ultimately now in an ESOP, if we're driving value, that value is turning around and, and, and hitting the participant statements. So if you can, if you can do a, a nice job with the help of your professionals, specifically your trustee, and being able to clearly and concisely project why what they do on a day-to-day basis uh, contributes to the bottom line, which therefore contributes to profit and, and their statement the more successful the ESOP is. And, and so I, I think everyone, everyone has to feel comfortable with what their stance is on that, whether you want to call it open book management, whether you're maybe not quite that open, but you're sharing key metrics. I, I really think that is the key 
to having the ESOP have the kind of impact in your organization that most hope it does. We have now one year behind us. What do the activities look like for that ESOP going into year one and beyond? Yeah, for for a lot of plans, that's really the first time these participants are going to see an actual statement. And I think, you know, depending on the transaction structure and a, a number of variables, I think the first year for a lot of ESOPs can be a little underwhelming. When you think about, you know, how the ESOP transaction affects the balance sheet, what happens to the value of the company initially, the value of the shares day one when the participant first gets them, the the balances are not going to blow anyone's mind in terms of their size. But I think the the overall theme of those first couple years worth of meetings are accumulating more shares in a company that nobody else has access to if unless they're employees of the company and kind of creating that fraternity mindset I, i'm not sure what else I, what other term i would use but that exclusive mindset of you can't own shares of this company unless you're employed here i think there's something to that and i think you know ultimately you know i hear a lot of people talk about you know, um, it's not getting easier to find employees. And especially depending on what age demographic you're looking at, there, there's, a, there's a disconnect, some would say, in terms of how to, how to appropriately describe value to them in that job. And I think that group of people specifically is really looking to be a part of something bigger. And, and what's bigger and better than being part of the owner of a company through the ESOP? And that that leads to another question. We've been, I would say a lot of these questions are geared for owners, but let's say you are someone fresh out of college or you're a manager or or any role in a company, what advice might you give them? You've got two companies to pick from. One is an ESOP, one is not. They both do great work. Are you going to encourage them to think harder about the ESOP, the, the company that's that's owned by an ESOP? Is is that a fair recommendation? Obviously, I'm biased, and so I'm going to acknowledge that bias up front. But I, I absolutely say yes. And and again, the, the the reason that I can say that with confidence is because I can pick a number of our mature ESOPs, and I can look back and say, boy, what would it have been like to be a an employee there 15 years ago, right? 20 years ago. And, and not everyone has that vantage point. So I, I have to take that into consideration. But knowing what I know now, uh, to be on the ground floor early on into some of these ESOPs that have seen outstanding growth would be exciting, not only from the financial benefit of it, but just, again, that feeling of being part of something bigger. I, I'm on the same page uh, with you, Jess. By the way, you know, you know a conversation is good no one can see me. I've been nodding my head a lot and I'm taking a lot of notes. So th- this is <laughs> well, a, this it's, good it's, stuff. It is. And we're passionate about it. And, and, and again, we're passionate because we see it work every day and, and see it impact lives. So uh, it, the conversation is great. Mark. You, you are, you're special because you've not even mentioned your bank yet. So Feel free to do any self-promotion. I know, you, in fact, I think you're calling from a not an airport, but a hotel room. I, I think you travel yeah. a lot, but this is your time. Self-promote, talk about your bank, your organization. 
Uh, wh- where can we learn more about you and your bank? Yeah, no, I appreciate that opportunity, Mark. And again, full bias aside, we, we do have a pretty special organization. So First International Bank and Trust is a 112-year-old organization now, uh, owned totally by one family for that full 112 years. So the Stenjum family is currently on their fourth generation of ownership and, and started in a small town in Western North Dakota, really in the heart of the oil patch. If those are familiar, those listening are familiar with, with North Dakota, kind of in that Northwestern part of the state. And, and for the first, call it 70, 80 years, saw nice consistent growth, uh, but, but, but really, you know, stayed in the in the confines of, of North Dakota footprint. You know, you say 20, 30 years ago, uh, you know, the generation two, three really started growing the bank further outside of the, the traditional North Dakota footprint. And so as it stands today, we've got roughly 30 locations across four states. So North Dakota, uh, the second state we entered was Arizona. Uh, obviously, a lot of people from North Dakota try to hide from the winter weather in Arizona. And so that was a natural spot for us to, to have locations. Um, and then recently in the last year and a half, two years, we've opened branches in South Dakota, specifically Sioux Falls. We acquired a, a company down there and then Minnesota. Now, Minnesota, uh, we did have locations in a couple of outstate uh, or out, out metro footprints, specifically Moorhead, obviously right across the river from us and Fargo. But also in Staples Motley, we've owned a bank out there for about 10 years, 12 years. Uh, but in the last year, we opened a branch in the Twin Cities, specifically Edina. And so we've seen a lot of growth, um, and and that growth is has been rewarded by by just the the size of employees. I think our organization is roughly 750, almost 775 employees strong. So great organization, great family ownership, and and really, I would say, in all my travels probably the most progressive community bank I've ever seen. Uh, So exciting to be part of that. This is Simple Bookshelf. There is no way we can let a guest go without asking about favorite books or books you recommend. Are you you a reader, Jess? Uh, Well, reader is defined a little differently than maybe what I, what would have been defined when I was growing up in school, but I am a, I'm a podcast person and and I definitely listen to books quite a bit with my travels. I find it just to be more efficient. I do have a couple of favorites and I'll be honest, my, my favorites tend to be, I, I, I like stories. I like hearing about what's, how people have gotten to where they are versus just strictly business books. Mm -hmm. And so I've got a couple, uh, shoe dog, the oh, story of Phil Knight. Love that oh, book. I mean, his his quote in there about someone may beat me, but they're going to have to bleed to do it. Uh, if if that doesn't pull at your heart, I don't know what does. Um, another one that I find very interesting is Green Lights by Matthew McConaughey. Uh, I just I just love his perspective on the world. And then finally, more maybe more of a traditional business book is The Compound Effect. Yes, by uh, Darren Hardy. I was going to say Darren Hardy and I believe Dan Sullivan. He may That's be a co-, co and I'm a huge Dan Sullivan uh, fan. The the shoe dog, that book could almost be fiction. I mean, someone could have written it, and, and it's like this is, fi- but no, it's th- this is the real thing. 
My only disappointment with Shoe Dog is he stopped right up to when they went public. There, That's there's, right. There's still That's more right. to the story, but I, I, I was disappointed when it ended because I I was I was expecting another four hours of listen, and and, it, and it, yeah, it, so I, I think maybe he was setting it up for a a second edition. Jess, this has been phenomenal, and I and I hope I hope and trust. We're going to hear your voice more on podcasts because you speak clearly. You speak to where people like me can understand. And, and I, I, I admire what you're doing and, and thank you for participating for uh, being on the show. Mark, my, my pleasure. I, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you how much I appreciated the invite and the opportunity to talk about a, obviously a, a subject that I'm passionate about and certainly appreciate all the work you're doing on your side as well. You are listening to CFO bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. Jess Selvick, thank you very much for joining us on the show. I'd like to suggest a simple homework assignment. I'd like for you to find a CEO who's gone through the ESOP process. I'd like for that ESOP to be at least three years old or older. So find a CEO and here are the five questions I want you to ask them. And by the way, they will be more than happy to answer these questions Question number one, would you go through this process again? Number two, did you get what you wanted in terms of price? And number three, have you lost any control in the business? And as a follow-up, is the management or the leadership the same or better? Question number four of this homework assignment, have you noticed an increased administrative burden as a result of the ESOP? Number five, what has been the average contribution to the ESOP as a percentage of all payroll dollars? Now, I was taking notes, and did you remember Jess saying that some companies, it can be up to 12%, the contributions to the ESOP of uh, employee payroll as compared to 3% or lower for non-ESOP businesses. Big, big, big difference. Before we wrap up, just a quick note of thanks to the people, to you who are sending notes on LinkedIn, uh, giving some words of encouragement, such as Bart Dinhock. He has a new book coming out on OKR. She said, Mark, I just listened to the show on Dr. Edwin Locke, the one on goal setting theory and loved it. Means a lot. And by the way, if you love the show, please give us a rating wherever you listen to the show. Again, special thanks to Jess Helvick of First International Bank and Trust. You rock, and thank you for everything you're doing in the ESOP community. We need to call this a wrap. I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. Until next time. <laughs>